0: Welcome to Vax Talk, the the podcast for people who love vaccines and want to hear us talk about them. My name is Karen Ernst. I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines.
1: And I'm Nathan Boonstra. I'm a general pediatrician here in Des Moines, Iowa at Blank Children's Hospital.
0: And we have a great show today. We are talking about measles in Minnesota, which is a lot (laughs) less fun than sleepless in Seattle. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You
1: Uh, had had thought of that a long time ago. I had. I'm I'm super clever. Good good delivery. Good job.
0: Thank you. Um, We have two great guests today. We have Joe Kurland from Children's, Minnesota, Children's Hospitals and Clinics of Minnesota, who is going to talk about what um, outbreaks look like behind the scenes in a hospital. And then we have Representative Mike Freiberg, who has been working legislatively for years in Minnesota on... um, on trying to prevent measles outbreaks, just like this one. Um, and so we're just going to talk about sort of what an outbreak does to a community, what it looks like um, b- from the people who are really in the trenches working on it. And I, th- I think that's sort of a different perspective that a lot of people haven't heard. So I'm excited to, to do this show.
1: I'd like to mention, of course, I'm Iowan, but I have strong ties to Minnesota. Uh, so this, this is actually an issue that's pretty close to my heart because I am married Minnesotan. Uh, wisely as my wife and I'm sure you would say and um, so I have a lot of family and friends I went to Luther College which is on the northern border of Iowa and like has nearly as many Minnesotans Mm -hmm. as as Iowans attending it and so I have a lot of friends and have been in touch with a lot of my friends and family with um, young children about this outbreak and about the new uh, immunization guidelines which we're going to need to talk about later probably with Joe and, uh, and so this is very meaningful to me.
0: Absolutely. And I, I've mentioned before on the show that I live in Minnesota. Um, and I ac- actually hesitated to do this episode because I was afraid it was self-indulgent, but, oh, it's important, um, though. it is important. Um, so w- let's start with around the web. I actually mm-hmm. want, um, Nathan, I want you to start with yours cause mine's going to okay. kick off a, a whole rant. Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, mine is less ranty than the William Shatner, uh, episode that i went on uh so this time what i just of course a lot of my time has just been taken up in terms of the vaccine scene uh reading about the minnesota measles outbreak and all the stuff that we're going to get into later in this episode but took a little bit of time to watch that uh bill nye the science guy episode uh and i was a fan of bill nye when i was uh younger um You know he takes heat in from for various things, and and certainly there are some of the episodes of this. So he's got this new series; it's on Netflix called "Bill Nye Saves the World," and a lot of it is just trying to communicate uh, topical uh, scientific concepts. So he addresses things like climate change, he addresses uh, food supply, uh, these kinds of issues, uh, and trying to do them in visual ways that help people understand. Uh, the issue. I think that there's been some criticism of some of the episodes about kind of a preaching to the choir type thing. I watched the. I've only watched the vaccination episode, uh, and I think it's been pretty good. I enjoyed it. I thought it had some good humor in it. Uh, I thought it communicated some subjects that were you know just made things fairly basic for people. Helped people understand what a virus of uh, sorry, what a vaccine is. It had a panel in the middle that consisted of a mom who uh, was previously anti-vaccine, That's and right. then kind of like uh, one of our guests last week, kind of like Genevieve. Uh, uh, well, she wasn't <laughs> anti-vaccine, but she no. had her. She had um, uh, wrote a hit her family. Th- right. This this panel member
0: that was Kristen O'Mara. You know what's great about her?
1: Yeah. Who? What?
0: Her her <laughs> intro into the world of um, being public about her. Um, being formerly anti-vaccine occurred on Voices for Vaccine's blog. So, you know, I was going to ask that Mm because I was
1: about to say, I don't know if we know this person or not because I didn't write down the name and look it up at the time, but that's fantastic. Yes. And she did a very nice job. Um in talking about what it's like to be a a parent who is against vaccines, I think relating to people who might be hesitant against uh about vaccines, there was a former uh president of the American Academy of Pediatrics on there, and then there was also a sociologist who was just kind of talking about the psychology involved
0: and you know and, what's neat about her?
1: Oh tell me because I have <laughs> not done my research hers? you have <laughs> go. <laughs>
0: Dr. Jennifer Reich uh-huh. uh, from the University of uh, Colorado Denver okay. um, is someone I've spoken to many times in the past. And what, what actually happened, <laughs> I'm sorry, this is so nerdy of me, uh, on uh, the producer from bill nye called uh-huh. me in october of last year um i was actually watching a soccer game uh, my kids were playing soccer and he he called me um and he said you know we're doing this show and i'm wondering what you think of guests we're looking for someone who used to be anti-vaccine and i'm like well you want kristen O'Mara because she's like the rock star of formerly being anti-vaccine right now um but but i said you really need to talk to dr jennifer reich she's she's got a book (laughs) now called um calling the shots Uh and she's got you know i half of the things that we do in voices for vaccines are basically based on her research uh, because she's amazing um so i was so excited that she was on that show she's so good
1: they did a really nice job. I yes. thought they did a nice job of presenting, um, like I said, kind of the psychology involved, the, the 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 mindset of people who are hesitant about vaccinating. They talked about important issues like uh, the clustering uh, and herd immunity and whatnot. Um, and then there's kind of what I think was the climax of the show was the the very uh, humorous bit where they basically portrayed. Uh, viruses as out of work actors whose jobs have been. Now, this is not the panel. This was uh, a right, skit right. that was done with um, kind of. I mean, they're all good actors, but they're not leading men actors, so it kind of really fit. Like, I believe one of them was uh, Norm from Cheers, right. George Went, uh, some other actors that you'll recognize from like, sitcoms and whatnot. Like the
0: dad from American Housewife.
1: Yes. All of whom I was kind of like, I know that guy. I gotta look him up. Oh, that's the point. Okay, right. that's that that fits with the joke. And so they're all out of work actors that are have been replaced by vaccines, and they get a hot tip on where they can go, where 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 families are not vaccinating, where they can go get work. And so it's worth a watch. I think right. it's only 25 minutes long, and it's pretty funny. And Bill Nye's. Nice. Uh, he, he. You can tell he's not. He, he, He's asking questions and still learning during the show. Mm-hmm. It's pretty clear um, that he, although he understands what vaccines do and how they work, he doesn't really understand everything about um, the the stuff that's going on in terms of why families are resistant and and whatnot. But he's mm-hmm. learning and talking to experts, which I think is one of the best things that you can do.
0: Absolutely. Great great Around the Web. That's on Netflix right now. Uh People should watch it. Um, Well, my Around the Web is really going to launch me into a rant, and then it's going to lead us right into our discussion. Um, My my thing came from the Age of Autism blog, which is always, you know, where (laughs) the worst information comes. Also, I'm hoping by mentioning them on two episodes in a row, they actually will cover our our blog or our podcast. (laughs) I mean, that would be... Um, mentioning again that Nathan's yep. got pictures all over the internet. Oh um, my gosh, yes.
1: <laughs> so big expose.
0: This was, uh, this was last week, May 9th. What day was that last week? Like Wednesday? Uh, th- mm-hmm. Statement from the Vaccine Safety Council of Minnesota.
1: Oh, this will be good.
0: At the Vaccine Safety Council of Minnesota, we recognize the benefits of vaccines. So it starts off with, you know, like a lie. Um, Do we, we need
1: to know what the Vaccine Safety Council of Minnesota is?
0: Uh, well, you know, um
1: Or does that yes. become obvious when they start talking well, about because,
0: Well, you know, with the passage of the National Vaccine Injury Act of 1986, co- Congress recognized that vaccines carry risk because they are, in quotation marks, unavoidably un- unsafe. <laughs> so they're anti-vaccine, yes. Right, um, right. And then there's lots of um, anti-vaccine tropes. Um, this discussion of vaccines has become emotional, but like most contentious issues, it is best addressed with civility, evidence, and open discussion between well-meaning citizens. During times of modest disease outbreaks, it is crucial to defend important rights, especially in the face of those who would trample over these rights for the in quotation marks greater good with a period outside of the quotation marks. So this was either written by someone who's british or edited by someone who's british okay um we are disturbed at the tone of the discussions of recent events in minnesota um a major metropolitan newspaper quite literally called for members of our organization to be put to death for responding to and to and supporting our somali friends so (laughs) okay yeah (laughs) i'm going to doubt that (laughs) Um, well, the, you know, there was a, an article There was in the... Was that the hanging Boston offense? Boston Herald. Yeah, yeah, it should okay, be a hanging offense. Of, I don't yeah. think it was like the... L- let's all, you know, kill the Vaccine Safety Council right. of Minnesota. No one wants that to happen. It um, was
1: bad use of a cliche.
0: It was. Um, but, uh, so... Here's my rant about this. The Vaccine Safety Council of Minnesota has been deeply involved in targeting the Somali community in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. In 2008... Group of Somali parents said, "You know, autism. We've never heard of this before. Our kids are getting it. What's up with that?" And uh, Generation Rescue, uh, sort of. S- then yes, that's Jenny McCarthy's organization mm-hmm. swooped in. From there, you know, was you know, from out of that came the um, Vaccine Safety Council of Minnesota, um, and you know, they they kind of swooped in and said, "It's it's the vaccines." it's the mmr vaccine um and uh you know uh, sometimes somali parents when they go in to get their kids vaccinated they'll say is that the autism shot um or they'll say i don't want the triple letter vaccine um so there's Mm -hmm. been a lot of sort of coaching parents like you don't get this vaccine you don't have to get this vaccine um they and that so unbelievably um they have continued to target this this population so this is so people might be wondering why are th- what is this statement why are they making a statement about this at all like what are they being defensive about um so the the great thing that happened was a washington post article was published um a couple weeks ago yeah by lena sun and it's t- it the the headline is you know anti-vaxxers spark um largest state's largest measles outbreak in decades um completely accurate headline great headline and um in full disclosure i did talk to lena's son on background for the for the article and um i did you know kind of gave her my perspective on it um but i what she did was sort of far beyond what i could have imagined as far as really tracking down um and, and you have to read the article i'm not going to I'm not going to read the article on the podcast but tracking sure. down you know a cause which is a, you know anti-vaccine advocates or I should say activists t- target Somali population um B effect measles outbreak it's really mm. like it's like a one to one cause effect and and it's I don't think there's ever been a clearer um example of the damage that the anti-vaccine uh oh that the anti-vaccine world does absolutely so th- the other thing that happened is in the midst of um all this outbreak and this is covered in the article too the anti-vaxxers decided to have a, a meeting mm. with parents and they brought notaries to sign exemption forms so that parents could opt out of vaccines. really yeah um, the, the whole spiel, they brought in Mark Blaxel, yeah. um, who's from Age of Autism. Actually, if you look at the Age of Autism blog right now, support our sponsors, Health Choice, that's the Vaccine Safety Council of Minnesota, mm. Canary Party, that's led by people in the Vaccine Safety mm-hmm. Council of Minnesota, Generation Rescue, that's, you know, I just mentioned them, <laughs> and the Holland They're Center, the that, is the, that is that is Autism Center run by the people who run the Vaccine Safety Council of Minnesota, uh-huh. It's all and then okay. Safe Minds, which is Mark Blacksell. So all the sponsors... <laughs> of age of autism w- went in, had this meeting the, that first they scheduled it at a place called the Brian Coyle Center, which is right in the middle of a neighborhood called Cedar Riverside, which is where a, a large concentration of Somali Americans live. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, the Somali people in the neighborhood were very upset that this was scheduled and it was at their request that the brian Coyle center took down all the anti-vaccine flyers wow. they canceled wow. the meeting so they moved it to a restaurant about two miles away it became um, very clandestine and they still had it <laughs> yeah go ahead
1: no i just said it, it it seemed like it became very clandestine like they knew that there was public opinion yeah against them and they were still i i, I can't fathom the gall that they had to do this anyway. They're like, no, no, we're really going to get these people. We're going to
0: find a way. Right. They even had people standing at the Brian Coyle Center and redirecting people over. They, I mean, they tried to rent a bus to bus people over from the Brian Coyle Center, and I don't know <laughs> if that was successful. But they had people standing there, like being like, no, no, the anti-vaccine, mem- you know, uh, meeting is at the restaurant now. Um. So I mean, they really wanted to, to get them there. Um. I watched some video footage of the meeting. It really seemed like it was um true believers and a couple of very brave doctors mm, who yes. came, I mean, just like total heroes who came and said, you know, I'm, I'm giving immunoglobulin to parents who are just as upset as you are that their children were exposed to measles. Mm-hmm. Um
1: they uh uh, there was an npr piece on this if i recall Mm -hmm. um and there were excerpts of the recordings of them talking
0: and they were getting shouted down and booed and 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 one of the doctors at the end was actually followed out by um some of the uh activists so uh it it was i yeah um it was not it it was kind of scary um but so th- that's sort of the goal that they have, that they're still targeting this community um, in the midst of this measles outbreak. I mean, I'm sure they've got other plans of ways to go in there and spread some more fear, um, fear and doubt, v- fear, uncertainty and doubt. Right. That's all the, the parts uh-huh. of FUD. Um and, and it's just, it's really sort of unconscionable I, because it, it does two things. First of all, it doesn't provide parents the actual support they need in raising an autistic child. It, it right. doesn't do that. It, it gives parents all sorts of false hopes. Um, you know, I don't know what happens. It, it, uh, and, you know, I know Generation Rescue gives grants to people to sort of have um, dubious, treatments to autism um and and, but then it also really puts children at risk for measles and you know this minnesota measles outbreak now we've had 54 um 54 cases as of friday the 12th of may Mm -hmm. um which is a lot in 2011 we had 29 cases uh you have to go all the way back to 1991 where there were i think 436 cases i think that number is a little off and 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 there were you know three children who died. Um, that's uh, that's a rate that's nearly one in one hundred children dying in that mm-hmm. outbreak. And so, uh, you, you know, it's it's a really significant outbreak. We're still in the middle of it. I mean, every day when I refresh at one o'clock um, in the afternoon, Minnesota Department of Health puts out r- new numbers, and so I refresh at like one o five, and there's you know another another few cases every single day. It's spread to three counties: Ramsey County and Hennepin County are next door to each other, but Crow Wing County is a couple of hours north. Um, and so, it's 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 pr- a pretty significant outbreak especially as we're heading into summer and people will sort of spread even further out you know there's concerns that measles could spread too so this is um that's my rant is that in that <laughs> what i found on the internet is that there's a measles outbreak and what do the anti-vaxxers do they double down they do um, they double down and then they get defensive that people are upset that they're doubling down it's just so it's unbelievable i just cannot even imagine what would be in your brain
1: it's interesting because i feel like a lot of times when there are outbreaks you don't see that doubling down this seem i maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong but i feel like a lot of times you know something bad happens and then a lot of times the anti-vaccine community yeah they're 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 squawking about something or just going on about how vaccines don't work that they believe in that they're dangerous and all that in their own private sessions but i haven't seen this level of okay kids are getting sick and getting in the hospital and darn it we're going to push our message to these people right i it's it's incredible And I don't think that from a PR perspective, it does them any good. Like it is not making anybody sympathetic to their
0: cause. And I I just want to mention that this vaccine safety council of Minnesota, um, you know they have the need to look good they they've tried to put forth a bill um in minnesota it was only introduced in the house house file 2005 um and part of the bill would make the vaccine safety council of minnesota responsible for a minnesota only database of vaccine yeah. reactions mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this, this is not behavior that makes anybody want to put that kind of data into their hands
0: Exactly. I mean, I don't want them having any medical information. If I get like an allergic reaction to my flu shot one day, I don't want them knowing about it. You know, (laughs) that's my doctor and me and some faceless person at the CDC that I don't know. Um, And I I don't anticipate ever having a reaction. Um, I think, you know, I think now I'm... I'm, Yeah, I think Joe's chomping at the
1: bit to, to join the conversation.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce our first guest today, Joe Kurland, who is an infection preventionist at Children's Minnesota, which is the largest children's hospital in the state of Minnesota and has a number of clinics. So welcome, Joe.
2: Thank you very much. I I didn't mean to be chomping at the bit so much uh, (laughs) that that, that the the conversation is just driving me crazy.
1: Oh, I believe it. (laughs) And we really appreciate you having, uh, we really appreciate you being on our show. Uh, because you're going to be able to give us so much more insight as to compared to us especially me so if I'm quiet I apologize but I'll try to chime in with questions if I get one from time to time but uh, you're going to have the knowledge so
0: right so go ahead Karen yeah I was just going to say why don't you just um, tell us you know some of the the things that you wanted to say as we were talking before (laughs)
2: Oh well when you're talking about these the, the anti-vaccine groups that are coming into the communities and highlighting the fact that it's it's true I mean individuals have the right to refuse any medical treatment they want including vaccines and that's their right they can make the decision Uh, I think doing it under the guise of informed consent is a bit of a ruse on their part but uh, what, what drives me crazy is that while they talk about how individuals may have the right to refuse vaccines they always seem to leave out the fact that public health then has the right to quarantine and isolate them if, uh, if they're deemed to be a risk at spreading the disease to others in the community. And that is huge for something like measles. So in this outbreak, if uh, families are not compliant and refusing to keep their children out of daycare, keep their kids home when they're at risk or in the incubation period, uh, they can impose. Public health has the option to go to the courts, seek a court order of quarantine, and have the children and the families basically kept um, in in under court order uh, in their homes or under quarantine in some way, so they're not at risk of spreading around. I don't believe that's been used in this current outbreak, but that is a potential risk to individuals that are um, in the community and they're not abiding by the social isolation or MDH has been calling exclusion requirements, and the fact that that's not included in the uh, in the communications in their uh, informational sessions, I think, is a gross, gross absence or a gross. Uh, uh, it just, it's just not right.
1: Karen mentioned earlier about
2: oh, and the other thing with. Sorry, I was going to nope. mention also then that with measles, it's it's devastating for some families because the incubation period goes up to 21 days. Sure. So if you're exposed, you could possibly be out of, you might need to stay home from work and you might need to be keeping your kids out of school, out of daycare, out of, out of uh, any activities they're involved in. You can't go to large social events. You shouldn't be traveling anywhere for up to three weeks.
1: Karen mentioned earlier that Um, with summer coming she was worried that uh, this outbreak could spread larger i know that i've seen at least some experts mentioning that there's the potential for this outbreak to get quite a bit larger than what we have so far do you think that summer coming is more of a, a risk factor for spread of infection or is the fact that kids will be out of schools actually does that reduce the risk i don't actually know much about how this is in what in what uh, areas this is being transmitted into to what age groups and, and such?
2: Yeah, so right now, I think that's kind of an astute point. I think right now, a lot of the disease that we're seeing is being transmitted uh, in daycares and in the communities when they have other gatherings. So in that sense, I don't think you know, the end of school is going to be a thing or a concern, but when you have other older kids out of school i think karen's right that families may have the opportunities to travel more get out in and see others and maybe take summer vacations and if that happens i think that is potentially a risk that this could be spreading not just across minnesota but to other surrounding states and other communities that have um you know family members where these individuals want to possibly go visit
1: so not unlike what we saw with uh Disneyland. That was though. That was more fall, winter. But of course, that's a vacation destination spot uh, that people are going to in the winter. Minnesota, I think people like to go to in the summer because it's a little bit more temperate up there. Could, <laughs> oh, nothing to disparage your great state, Karen. I'm sorry. Um, well, yeah. If
2: people like mosquito bites, they certainly should be coming to yeah. visit. So. Well,
1: I will be coming up quite a bit to Minnesota myself, and 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 whatnot. So excellent. Uh, I was going to try to lead right into a question there, but I don't have another one right-handed. So.
2: Right, so there is the risk, then, that you have individuals... I think what you're trying to say is that you have individuals in Minnesota, then, that are potentially infectious going off to other states to spread it outwards. Mm-hmm. But like California, if we have uh, people coming up to travel to Minnesota for vacations to visit the lakes and uh, have a great time on the fishing and other lake-based activities we have here uh, that could they be exposed and i don't think that's out of the realm of possibility i don't think it's as similar or it's not as a bigger a risk as disneyland was primarily mm-hmm. because you don't have the concentration you don't have the density right. of people in minnesota that you do at that one location in disneyland plus if you look at measles uh it really is rapidly deactivated by UV light. It, it really is airborne transmitted only. It doesn't live on surfaces that could be uh, infectious to others after prolonged times. So it, I, I think if people are doing the outdoor activities, there's probably a low risk of spread. But if you're inside and, you know, if the weather's bad, <laughs> if there's mm-hmm. lots of rain sure. and folks are inside cabins and sharing lots of uh, uh close time indoors I think that could be a greater risk.
1: Now it was a week or two ago the Minnesota Department of Health released some updated guidelines in terms of immunizing kids. Um, Can you talk a little bit about those and uh, what I'm sure we have quite a number of Minnesota listeners uh, so this is important information to get out there.
2: Right so the original guidance that came out following the outbreak identification was that uh, all individuals that live in Hennepin County and all Somali Minnesotans should be getting well first of all they should be getting a first dose of MMR and if they live in those areas uh, they should be getting a second dose of MMR as soon as possible so the, the closest you can get two MMR vaccines together is after 28 days. So the recommendation was that those individuals that both live in Hennepin County or are Somali Minnesotans should get two doses of MMR as soon as possible. Uh, When we had the additional cases I think in the Crow Wing County as you mentioned and as they've had other questions from clinicians across the state wondering well you know I have kids that attend daycare or attend school in Hennepin County but they live in one of the surrounding counties can they get it that was kind of unclear officially and so the updated guidance from the Minnesota Department of Health was that uh, it could basically be clinician discretion in conversation with their patients that if they feel that the patients at risk or would benefit from getting a second MMR vaccine that that is an option so it's been kind of now made official what always has been the case that clinicians can decide exactly what's best for their patients and connect accordingly
1: and it's worth mentioning to parents that uh, if you get your first dose uh, uh, if your child gets their first dose of the MMR vaccine after 12 months of age they can get that second dose 28 days after the first and they don't have to get a third for school so that counts they're they're not getting an extra shot or anything like that Um, I think that's worth knowing for parents is that correct
2: Right, although the individual, there are some kids that would need a third shot, and it's any child then that gets the MMR vaccine before their first birth date. So there are kids that are potentially exposed that are eligible to get the MMR vaccine between 6 and 12 months of age. Typically we ask for that for kids that are traveling internationally or areas that have measles cases or outbreaks ongoing but during this outbreak if the child is potentially at risk of getting exposed to measles or has been exposed to measles they can get an MMR vaccine between their six and twelve months of age but then would need two additional doses starting at uh, one year right
1: we had our last case if i remember correctly the last case of measles in iowa was in 2011 and it was a situation like that where it was a, a nine-ish month old child who traveled overseas uh and brought measles back actually brought it back through o'hare fortunately didn't transmit it to anyone uh that was uh, reported um, god bless her immunity yeah <laughs> And uh, exactly. And um, that was a child who should have been and could have been immunized before traveling, probably wouldn't have gotten the measles. And then, of course, this is a very young infant, which means that she's at the higher risk of I believe it was a girl. I'm trying to remember. Uh, But this child is at the highest is at the higher risk of developing um, SSPE uh, down the line. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, Joe, and why that's so scary for families?
2: Yeah, and that's, that is That is a scary... R- I just want to highlight one thing. If you look at the Minnesota Department of Health website, they actually have statistics going back for the ser- past several years and how many measles cases we've seen. We've averaged probably about one or two cases every year, with the outstanding areas being, what was that, 2011 when we had the big outbreak of 20-some cases, yeah. and then, as Karen said, in, back in the 1990s when they had that large 400-plus case. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, the big concern came in, uh, actually Catherine Hilleman from the California Department of Health was just in Minnesota and we actually had lunch with her the other day and it was kind of nice of her to stop by and coincidental in, in a sense, but she came and talked to us about SSPE and gave a nice talk. And what they found in California was that prior to their uh, Disneyland outbreak and I think prior to some other outbreaks that they had SSPE or subsclerosing panencephalitis uh, was presumed or assumed to be this very rare occurrence So this very rare not not frequently occurring illness and or symptom of disease and uh, what they found was that looking at the statistics on it looking at the epidemiology going back and doing blood draws in patients that were presenting with a symptom, they found uh, by PCR, evidence of measles infections previously, and that for the general population, I think for children under the age of 10 that had measles, I want to say it's like one case for every 1,300 kids, which is far more, far more common than they anticipated. But if you look at the kids that had measles under 12 months of age, the rate of SSPE was one in like 600 cases. And it was just crazy the number of kids that could pot- potentially be at risk of this. And it was far more uh, terrifyingly common than we previously believed. And what could come of this is that uh, you know these kiddos that are being exposed at Disneyland, the kiddos that are being exposed now in Minnesota, are at risk of this. But we don't see it for years. It takes like a decade for this disease to pr- progress and actually become clinically evident, and it's it's devastating. It do you are you have you seen? I personally have not seen cases of SSPE, but have you actually dealt with patients that suffer from this?
1: So, I have not seen SSPE myself, but when I think about it, it is one of the most tragic things that I think about when it comes to vaccine-preventable diseases, because as far as I understand there is no way to predict which kids are going to develop this this is uh, it's the onset of it it's a delayed onset complication of measles it is invariably uh neurologically devastating to the child and invariably fatal if i understand it correctly um and it's there's no way for a parent to know and if their child caught measles when they were younger uh if a parent's child caught that then they're at higher risk and the parent doesn't know and they have to just wait it out and see and I it's a graphic description kind of but it's hard to come up with a better descriptor than essentially a a time bomb that you don't know if your child has I haven't seen any cases of it myself I have read cases about it uh, in California And then I saw that research as well, uh, indicating that it was more common than we had previously believed. And that's scary.
0: It is. And it's scary in Minnesota because of the fact that measles is spreading right now through through daycare centers. Um, and it actually leads me to a question that I've seen a lot of parents asking. I know uh, I saw one woman asking online, you know, I have an, an infant who's due for a well child check and it right in the heart of Minneapolis, and I'm scared to bring my child into the doctor. Should I just skip this well child check, or what should I do? Um, also people, you know, asking... Um, what they can do to protect their infants. You know, my, my kid's really sick. Do, should I really bring my child to, you know, the children's emergency room? So what what can you tell parents about what is happening in clinics and in hospitals to protect the kids who need protecting while treating the kids who need treating?
2: Yeah, so Children's has seen a lot of cases. <clears throat> we've, excuse me, we've, we've seen quite a few cases, both... Uh, in our clinics and in our ERs, and then we've tested many kids that are suspect cases, many of which have come back negative, but we are we're working very hard to prevent additional spread of the disease in our facilities, and we're doing this a couple ways. One, in the ER entrance, we have what's called universal masking, and at the Minneapolis location, we have a what we call a pivot nurse, or a nurse that meets individuals as they come in at the front door, at, or the ER entrance, and we ask them to put a mask on, and then the nurse does a rapid assessment to see, are we concerned about measles, is it a possibility, or they have something else, You know, this kid broke their arm, and they don't worry about measles, and we have them Kind of go two different routes there. If we are concerned about measles, we very quickly bring them back to a room to get them assessed and get them uh, triaged and get them isolated so they're not at risk of spreading the disease in our waiting rooms. Uh, but if if an in, but to help if if something were to slip through the cracks or we have someone that presents not with the symptoms that we'd expect to see for measles, but Maybe with something a little bit less or complicated picture. We're having everyone mask because the disease is spread through airborne droplets. And if we can help kids cover their cough and avoid the droplets from getting kicked out into the environment, the idea is that we can minimize the number of potential exposures that we'd have in our ears. Uh, Also, at the hospital facility, we don't want everybody that's coming into the building to have to put a mask on. So we have signs up and asking anybody that comes in with a rash, a fever, uh, and like the runny nose, uh, the cough, anybody that's coming in sick like that to put a mask on. Just as you'd have someone mask any time of year when they're coming in with a cold or flu symptoms, so that they're not potentially kicking out a bunch of virus or things that could be spread to others. So that's in the main hospital areas. The ERs have that, and then in our clinics, we have a request to the clinics uh, for all people to mask on their way in to any of our clinic facilities, and we very quickly try to screen out who might be at greatest risk or who might be presenting with symptoms that are we'd expect measles to show up as. And if they show up with those, we want to bring them back to a room where we can keep the door closed and keep the air separated from the rest of the folks so they're not possibly getting exposed, and just doing our best to minimize the exposures they have in the facility. So it's, it's not a zero risk, but we have not seen um, many cases being transmitted in our facilities. It's really community exposures that are resulting in new cases being identified, not in our healthcare facility.
1: So I think it's worth making it clear to parents that if you have to go to the doctor, if you have to take your child to the doctor, it's okay to do that. There are um, steps being taken to decrease the risk of exposure uh, and to make sure that uh, measles cases are quarantined. Um, But it's also important for parents to realize that if they suspect their child could have measles, if they're exposed to measles, regardless of their vaccination status, call. Uh, Don't show up. (laughs) <laughs> because right because we right. don't want any potential exposure to happen so call the clinic if your child's sick with a fever and a rash call the clinic first our clinic has protocol in place to kind of screen those um, maybe get them to a, uh, an isolation room before you know to get looked at uh, to rule out rule in or rule out the possibility Um, And then our clinic has also taken steps to make sure that, uh, you know, we've contacted every single one of our families who are behind on their measles vaccine. Uh, Do you know, are are those steps being taken? Uh, I'm sure they are, but what kind of efforts are being uh, taken uh, in the clinics at your hospital area and in Minnesota to ensure that as many people are immunized as possible?
2: Yeah, and i I I failed to mention this. so the the precautions that I listed are just what's being done for folks that come walking in our front door. Uh, in addition to that like you had like you said many of our clinics or all of our clinics are screening folks on the phone prior to arrival so when they when they call in for a clinic appointment in the next couple days, if they're calling in for a sick visit, uh, if they're calling in, or if they're getting a call as a reminder of an upcoming appointment, we're always we're always asking folks to you know if if they're ill, if you have symptoms consistent with measles, to give us a call and let us know before you come in because like you said there are measures we can take before they even get here to make sure that we minimize the exposures and that may include uh, staff coming out to meet you with a mask or bringing you right into a different entrance uh, it's it's really just trying to take measures to not 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 give anyone special treatment but really to avoid the uh the the risk of spreading it to other people in the waiting rooms and and i think you know one of the key points you said there is that yeah if, if you need medical care you need to come in come in we're gonna get you treated we're gonna there are many things that I have a great risk and measles is a concern but you know there are other diseases that we're concerned about as well and it should not prevent anybody from coming in for their appointments and if there is a concern uh, you can contact your doctor by phone give us a call ask the question if you know you need to come in for maybe an elective surgery or on uh, if you have an appointment that you're not sure about call and ask for some advice because the nurses can do a good job the doctors can do a good job of kind of saying whether or not your condition your concerns really need to come in immediately or if this is something you can wait but even waiting we don't know how long this outbreak is going to be going on this like I said the uh, the disease takes 21 days to incubate before for this outbreak to be declared over the state would need to see Uh, no new cases diagnosed for 42 consecutive days. So this is going to be over a month of time uh, before this outbreak is being declared over. And we have new cases that were just diagnosed this weekend that'll be announced uh, at 1 p.m. this afternoon. So it's getting bigger. It's not getting smaller yet.
1: Yeah, and there's every indication. I mean, if you're putting off something because of the measles now I mean now might be a better time uh than later if this if this outbreak increases and especially if you've got kids and they need um they need uh their physicals done and whatnot don't put those off
2: yeah because you'd be potentially putting off the risk of getting additional vaccines and other uh, treatments for diseases that are out like whooping cough we see pertussis all over the place and that's uh just as dangerous to infants as measles
0: Okay. So I just wanted to um, ask, because you're talking about, you know, um, looking for children who potentially have measles, what should parents be looking for if they're worried about their kids getting sick? What are sort of some of the symptoms that they should be concerned about or sort of sussing out um, when their children are ill as far as, do my kids have measles?
2: Yeah, so that's a great question. So the uh, measles has this classic presentation, and it has... Starts off with a fever, uh, or actually, it starts off more with a cough and a runny nose and red watery eyes. So it's what cl- clinicians call the three C's because it's cough, coryza, and conjunctivitis. So the coryza is like f- the twenty-dollar word for runny nose, and conjunctivitis is the red, irritated eyes. Uh, then you get a f- you get this high f- you get a fever. Uh, and Nathan, correct correct me if I'm wrong, but it starts off moderate, so like 101, 102 degrees, sure. but... Right, so and the, but after you get this rash, the the fever can spike and it gets up to 103, 105 degrees or higher, or like not higher than 105, but it gets really warm. And the kids that we've been seeing come in that are in the middle of like the worst part of this disease, uh, one of our clinicians described as kind of like presenting like rag dolls. They just lay there and they're limp and they're exhausted and miserable, um, and and it's it really is just a horrible little disease to have, especially when you're a kid. But they just look miserable. So what we're looking for then is cough, runny nose, red watery eyes with fever. And then the rash is, it's really interesting the way they describe the way this rash presents. It one of our uh, other infectious disease doctors said it's like taking a bucket of virus and dumping it over your head it starts at your hairline <laughs> at the top and it spreads down your face and your neck to your torso and then goes out to your arms and legs and it, you know the rash may last for like five to seven days and then it goes away in the same pattern that it appeared from the head down
1: one of the things that you hear about on tv uh, are complex spots can you tell a little bit about what those are?
2: <laughs> yeah, complex box I think, can be more difficult. I think uh, it, it really can be tricky to find those. Yeah. Again, that's something that's going to appear a day or two, maybe before the rash appears. I think, I think you know, they're tricky to see. They're these little white dots that appear inside the mouth, and you know unless you know exactly where and what to look for I don't know if everybody like sees it and with so many clinicians now coming of age and being trained in an era where we haven't seen these vaccine preventable diseases it can be tricky for folks to see like yeah this is a measles this you know, seen the characteristic things you read about it in a textbook but unless you've worked in developing countries or underserved communities where these diseases have been occurring you you might not have ever seen it in your clinical practice so i wouldn't rely on looking for complex spots i'd be more worried about looking at the clinical symptoms the three c's plus fever uh and then watching for that rash to appear and the minnesota department of health does have guidance that they want uh, you need to have the rash before we'll test because if you were to test for measles before the characteristic rash appears there's a possibility you're gonna have a false negative that you'd be testing too early and then if they suddenly present with the rash they may have measles but if you tested just when they had the, th- the three C's plus a fever it's possible that individual did have measles and just hadn't presented to the rash or didn't have enough virus to actually come back with a positive test.
1: Now is there a way for families that are concerned about measles in their community how can they tell if their school or their daycare is at particular risk?
2: So I'm not sure about the daycare. I think you can contact your daycare provider if they're licensed in the state, they need to have information about which kids are or are not immunized in their facility. But if you go to the Department of Health website, I think Karen might have an easier link on her website, but the Minnesota Department of Health does have a database that you can download as an Excel file and look to see by county, School district and by individual schools
0: and daycare centers.
2: Oh, they have daycare centers in there too. Good. Mm-hmm. Um, you can look and see what the immunization rates are for kindergarten and for seventh grade. And there's different vaccines that are recommended for each of those, but you know, the, they break it out by MMR vaccine, by TDAP by polio i mean they're all it's all laid out there you can nicely see what your rates are and for measles uh you might ask like what 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 do we need to be protected against measles Um, and it comes down to how contagious it is and uh, the reason why we're worried about measles is because it is so contagious it's actually like the most contagious disease we have uh, because it, it, so many people that are susceptible can be very easily exposed and then go on to develop illness. Um, as a comparison, when you when you look at influenza, influenza tough comparison because we don't it changes each year. But by and large, influenza is expected to can like one infected person is estimated to infect between two and six other people in the course of their illness for each case. So when you look at flu, for each sick person, we expect to have like between two and six additional sick people exposed uh, or go on to develop disease. Uh, Ebola, which we were horribly concerned about at the time, does not do a very good job at spreading itself. Uh, You have to have very close exposure to bodily fluids to get that and for each one sick person with Ebola, Ebola would only go on to spread possibly to two additional people. So it really is a low limit on that. Uh, Measles. If you had a community that's unimmunized, for each one person that is sick with measles, it's estimated that 18 people will become sick. So it really is a very efficient, very excellent disease at spreading and getting in and causing illness in other people. Um, and because of that, you need to have a very high level of immunization coverage. Let's go back to why I'm talking about that. Uh, you, you have to have a very high level of immunization to actually protect a community against such a efficient virus at spreading disease. So. I believe the th- what we call the threshold vaccination level to prevent infections is right around 95%. So schools that are below 95, that are 94 and under percent vaccinated for MMR, are potentially at risk of having cases show up in their facilities. And measles, no no medical treatment is 100% effective. And the measles vaccine is no exception. Uh, and because of that, n- even if you have the MMR vaccine, there is a risk that, you know, you could get exposed to the virus and the virus would just overwhelm whatever immune protection you have from the vaccine. And we have about three, we've learned that about 3% of the population don't respond to the vaccine. So when we talk about the community immunity, or herd, I don't like talking about cattle so much, so I don't like using herd immunity. So when we talk about community immunity, how many people in the area around you need to be protected, uh, you're not just talking about the people that are immunocompromised, you're not just talking about the kids under 12 or 6 months of age that can't get the MMR vaccine because they're too young. Uh, you're also talking about this 3% of the population that don't respond to the MMR vaccine, and by no fault of their own. They went off to the doctor, they got their shots, but for whatever reason, their body just doesn't react to the vaccine, and they're not protected. We need to make sure that we have 95% of the population or more getting this vaccine to make sure we're not getting additional cases. So it, it it's it's a pretty it's a pretty aggressive disease and it spreads so easily that we need to have lots of uh lots of people covered before we can make sure we get it knocked out of the park here
0: and i just want to mention that um the minnesota childhood immunization coalition has on their website um the same uh databases that the department of health does um and i i'm just mentioning that because i know the website offhand it's um vax org vaxmnkids.org, Um and then you go to the take action tab and it's th- sort of listed right there so that's pretty easy for people to find if they, um, that's okay um, if they, uh, if they want to figure out uh, what their daycare or school immunization rates are in the state of Minnesota um, and I know a lot of states do that too that ev- everyone across the country really should be looking into what are the immunization rates in my school and are, uh, um, are we at risk for an outbreak in the future? Because you just never know when it's coming. You can't predict those things.
2: Yeah, and I think this is a good opportunity for states and other individuals across the country to look to their public health departments, look to their schools, uh, and if they're not getting a response, talk to their legislatures and say, you know, this is information, this is public health information that is, you know, important for our communities to stay healthy. We want to have we have a right, and we want to be able to see what what this data is we want to know are we protected or not and this should be made public
0: Right. I know the state of Texas is working really, really hard on getting, and i and I apologize, I don't know where the status of the bill is, but they're working hard on getting that information passed too, and, and that's um, that's very important. And some states might decide that you don't need legislation to make that information public, that that's publicly available information. All you need to do is contact the Department of Health. So, you know, look into where your state is at with that, you know, and I think that's some really good advice, Joe.
2: Yeah, and I think the other important thing is to realize that we, we have what's called... The health privacy information, which is the HIPAA Act. And you know, I think it's very important to protect individuals' privacy, and I would never want individuals to be identified uh, as, and singled out for disease and all that. So I, I don't want to be in violation of HIPAA. I, I want to respect individuals' health privacy and make sure that everyone's protected with that. But I, I also want to say that uh, when we look at this data, we're looking at county school. This is large populations. It's not looking at individuals. And I just want to head off that question before anybody asks that about you know right. privacy rights and information like that.
0: Right. And if you get your school's information, like don't be a jerk. Don't go around and try to figure out who that unvaccinated kid is. Deal with the deal with the school as a team, not a kid as you know the enemy. That's not who your enemy is. It's the disease.
2: Right, absolutely. I don't think this should be kind of a confrontational thing at all. This is, you know, I think even with the Somali community, them for this, but I do hope that they are, that they and others in the state and across the country take notice of this and recognize this, recognize the case in California, recognize the case in 2012, 2013 that occurred in Ohio, uh, the outbreak that occurred in Ohio, as what happens when communities don't immunize their kids these diseases come around and there can be very significant outcomes or co- what we call complications now we just talked about SSPE but there are individuals that can go on to develop pneumonia from from the measles in the acute stage you can go off and you can get and uh, ince- other types of encephalitis it can attack the brain which can result in ear infections can occur as well which can result in deafness and other type of neurologic problems beyond SSPE and if the pneumonia, if the, if the encephalitis gets so bad it could possibly even lead on to death so like you said in 20, uh, the 1990s in that large measles outbreak we had three individuals die of measles this is not just something you can get over it's not a disease that everyone recovers from most people do but there are a lot of people, or there are some people, that can go on and develop very life-threatening complications or, a decade later, develop a neurologic disease uh, that is, as I just read on the, uh, what is this, medlineplus.gov, uh, SSPE is always fatal. People with this, this disease will die one to three years after diagnosis, although some may live longer. But it is always fatal, as Nathan said. It, it's, it's, a, It's a scary disease.
0: It is. I think um, this is probably a good place to end and let you get back to your work at Children's and prote- you know, protecting children and che- treating children and trying to get that good information out there. Um, so thank you so much for joining us, Joe.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me, and uh, I hope, I hope, this is a, hope some of the families find this valuable information.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks very much.
0: And uh, thank you. We are joined now by Representative Mike Freiberg uh, from Minnesota. Uh, Mike represents a district close to Minneapolis, and he has been working on public health and vaccine issues for a number of years. So welcome, Representative Freiberg.
3: Thank you, Karen. Appreciate it
0: so um, I just want to mention before we get going that we did invite representative Ilhan Omar who uh, represents the, the, the one of the districts primarily affected by the measles outbreak to come on the show and she sent her regrets and she had uh, lots of scheduling conflicts this week I, you guys have a busy week so um, I, I want to thank you so much for taking your time out of your really busy week to <laughs> join us um, And so my first question when we're looking at this Minnesota measles outbreak for you is sort of what is the background as far as what has been attempted legislatively in Minnesota to prevent something like this from happening?
3: Sure. Well, I've uh, carried legislation for the past few years um, dealing with the immunization exemption requirements. Um, So Minnesota has, just by way of background, Minnesota has, you know, among the more... Lacks um, vaccination requ- requirements in state statute. It's basically a broad philosophical exemption if you have any belief, whether it's just religious or, you know, the flawed belief that vaccines cause autism, you can opt your child out of getting any of the standard vaccinations recommended by the CDC. All you have to do is uh, fill out a notarized form, um, and then your children can go to school without having been vaccinated. Um, So I've I work in the public health area, uh, policy area when I'm not at the legislature. Um, I've taught a public health law course um, at, a, at a local law school here in the Twin Cities um, previously. And when I taught that course, I sort of learned about Minnesota's uh, vaccination requirements. And I'm a parent myself. I have uh, two small children aged four and seven. And the first time I introduced this bill, they were even smaller. So they were definitely of the age where this was relevant. And it just concerned me that... Um, You know, there's a potential that my kids could be going to a school or a daycare um, with uh, children who are not vaccinated, essentially for no scientifically valid reason I mean obviously there are children who are immunocompromised or going through chemotherapy who can't get vaccinated and uh, you know and they depend on everybody else getting vaccinated to um, to protect them from diseases that can be potentially deadly um, so um, I was first elected in 2012 started serving in 2013 I actually kind of wanted to introduce a bill right out of the chute but I remember in 2013 uh, Minnesota was updating its uh regulations uh Related to vaccinations, and I, I met up with some pro vaccine advocates who suggested that I hold off on introducing my bill until that process had finished. So I introduced it in 2014, um, which was a little late in the session. So unfortunately, it didn't get a hearing that year. Um, I got reelected in 2014 and reintroduced it in 2015. Um, at that point, the uh, House had swung to the Republicans, um, which, full disclosure, I'm not one. And so I introduced the bill that year. It didn't get Get a hearing again in 2015 or 16 um, and i reintroduced it this year and it didn't get a hearing again so i mean i think at least I know on the Republic, the bill I've introduced has always had bipartisan support, um, but I know at least on the Republican side, there are a couple legislators who are not fans of vaccines. Um, There have actually been some anti-vaccine bills introduced in the legislature, and I think the the sense I have is that the the chair of the health committees here in the House would just sooner not... You know, give the anti-vaccine people a platform, which um, a hearing for even a pro-vaccine bill could represent. So um, just the path of least resistance has been just not to hear the bill. So unfortunately it hasn't gotten a hearing. And then um, I, I know we'll get into this more, so um, I don't have to answer it, but you know, in the last month we've also had a measles outbreak now, so the topic has gotten some more discussion. And I could go into that now, or um, wait for your yeah, question. Wh-
0: why don't you go ahead and just uh, say a little bit more about that now?
3: Well, may sure. I, ask, um, may I interrupt and ask to the.
1: In 2011 was the last, if I remember correctly, that was when there was a smaller but significant um, <coughs> measles outbreak in Minnesota, also among the Somali population. Does that sound about right, timing-wise? Did that uh, did that enact m- many changes in in a a desire to make you know to how did how did what steps were taken to kind of improve health at that time and do you think the fact that we've now had a bigger measles outbreak is that what does that say about the possibility of being able to make change here as it's coming up i think that's kind of a nice springboard for what what can we do now or what's the measles outbreak going to do in terms of inspiring uh better vaccination rates in minnesota
3: sure um well i that sounds right. That the last, um, that there was a minor outbreak in 2011. I mean, this is the worst outbreak we've seen in 25 years. Um, and I was not in the in the in the House of Representatives in 2011, so I can't say specifically what sorts of legislative efforts were taken. I, I guess it occurred to me I didn't even mention really what my bill does. So the bill I've been carrying just. It doesn't get rid of the exemption requirements uh, or the non-medical exemption the way California did a year or two ago. It just says that if you are not going to vaccinate your children, you have to meet with a health pre- professional beforehand who will explain to you sort of the risks of doing that both to your child and to other chi- children who depend on uh, vaccination, uh, you know, more herd immunity for um as many other kids as being vaccinated as possible um so that's that's the route my the bill i have ta- has t- uh, would take um now fast forward to this year um i think you asked whether the current measles outbreak um could lead to some some activity related to vaccination rates and i, th- I think it already has for one thing i mean you know the anti-vaccine people have very deliberately targeted the Minnesota Somali population um, because they do have some concerns surrounding autism and the anti-vaccine people have exploited that and it has resulted in a dramatically lower vaccination rate among that community. I think it's 42% if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Um, But because of the measles outbreak, I think a lot of people within that community have realize like measles is a really serious disease and these concerns related to autism are not true and i know the department of health here in minnesota has done a great job with limited resources of you know describing you know in a culturally competent way just The benefits of vaccines and so many somali parents have had their children vaccinated because they've seen how devastating measles can be there already have been several hospitalizations because of that Um, and they've also realized at the same time that the that the fears regarding autism don't have anything to do with vaccines and uh, that that's all misinformation so they've made um, you know so they have done outreach into that community and there've been, I think I heard on the radio this morning, there was something it was in the hundreds, the number of new vaccinations and it's way beyond the normal vaccination rates. So they have, they have made inroads in that regards. Um, Some of the legislation that's been introduced this year doesn't get at the immunization exemption the way uh, my bill would. So uh, representative Omar, who you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, she introduced a bill that would have, uh, sent $500,000 to the Department of Health to work with communities that are experiencing either um, low vaccination rates or outbreaks of vaccine-preventable diseases, Um, and then uh, just given the Department of Health more resources to, to address that issue within those communities in a scientifically accurate and culturally competent way. Um, and I know the Department of Health is, um, has drafted some legislation. I don't think it's been introduced yet, but it would create a uh, public health contingency fund, basically a $5 million fund, uh, just to... Uh, where that can be tapped whenever there is there are outbreaks of uh, communicable diseases or other public health emergencies. Um, we are actually also seeing outbreaks of both syphilis and multi-drug resistant tuberculosis in Minnesota at the moment. So, um, you know, the Department of Health's been doing great work, but they do have limited resources, and you know they need more from us. So, um, so. They're proposing a public health contingency fund. Um, It sounds like that could happen, but we're kind of in the middle of end of session budget negotiations as well. So, you know, hopefully this issue doesn't get lost uh, in the middle of all of that.
0: Right. So I I have a question for you about uh, Representative Omar's bill and about the discussion about um, budgetary issues concerning outreach to um, communities in Minnesota. And that is that, uh, you know, uh, Representative Omar had to go through some sort of... um, hoops to try to get her bill heard on the floor Um, and there was a debate and I I watched the whole debate because I'm a little bit of a nerd but most people haven't so I'm wondering if you could talk about what some of those hoops are and sort of describe generally speaking how the debate went, um, because it wasn't without contention, (laughs) Um, but just sort of what the arguments and counter-arguments were um, from people.
3: Sure. Um, Well, sort of the way the legislative process works in Minnesota, um, you have to, a bill has to be heard in a committee by a certain date, by the committee deadline. Otherwise, it's harder but not impossible to pass the bill. Um, so the committee deadline was, had long passed. It was mid or late March or something like that. So um, she just introduced her bill a week or two ago to address the measles outbreak. My bill didn't get a hearing, so that was, you know, unless it goes, it, the bill, if, it, if a bill goes through the rules committee, um, it can still be, you know, it can still get passed, but it's kind of a a different process. So there are procedural mechanisms on the floor of the House by which you can have bills brought up, but you have to suspend the rules. So the normal rules of the House say you can't hear a bill unless it's been through this committee process. And to suspend the rules, you need a, a positive vote of about uh, Supermajority—it's two-thirds of the House. So, um, so Representative Omar um, made a motion to suspend the rules to have her bill immediately considered on the House, just because of the urgency of, of the measles outbreak within her community. Um, and uh, so there was so there was some discussion. You know, the discussion wasn't so much about the lack of a need for it, but the arguments against it were you know related to the way the bill was drafted you know the bill would have made the funds available in uh, fiscal year 2018 which actually starts on July 1st of 2017 so uh, you know one representative said well these the funds wouldn't even be available for a couple months so there's no need to bypass the regular rules uh, that we have you know representative Omar made what I thought was a good point she said it would take you know the Department of Health would need a month or two to get prepared to get this to get this um, proposal up and running um you know and beyond that actually if you do suspend the rules you can amend the bill to make it take effect immediately which is another point another reason there so i mean i spoke in favor of her motion you know i think it's something we need to do um you know i think we you know, in the long run, the long run solution is to also address the exemption in Minnesota law, but just because of the urgency surrounding the current measles outbreak, I thought she had a very good proposal uh, that we need to, that we need to pass. Does that answer your question?
0: Yes, that's a good answer. And I don't know if you know this figure, but in light of um, that bill, I'm wondering what uh, this outbreak is projected to cost uh, the Minnesota Department of Health.
3: Uh, So I have a letter from the Department of Health here, and uh, they said that you know, they've been working on response, re- this, and this letter is a week or two old already, but it says, we've been working on response-related activities for three full weeks since April 11th, and we've already accrued approximately $200,000 in labor costs. Uh, the work by our scientists, managers, and others has included de- disease investigation, family and daycare contacts, public outreach, and coordination with partner agencies. Unfortunately, this outbreak shows no sign of abating soon and is likely to cost more than $1 million by the time it subsides. And that total excludes expenses incurred by counties, hospitals, clinics, and other healthcare facilities, um, and it f- fails to account for cost to families who have lost income due to missed work when their children are excluded from school and daycare. So, um, wow. so they so they anticipate a million dollars just from this measles outbreak alone, and that doesn't you know that doesn't cover the other diseases that I mentioned before too.
1: Right. But I'm wondering about your experience, uh, Karen, after 2011 and whether or not there was um what the what the feeling of w- what the pulse was in Minnesota after the last measles outbreak do you have much
3: inside do you remember much yeah about what was going on there the audio <laughs> yeah, again, I wasn't really in the legislature then, so unfortunately, I don't no, know.
1: I know. I was just asking Karen if she if she knew anything in terms politically as to if that changed the political climate at all.
0: There was v- very little will, and that's actually, I mean, that's when I kind of became a pain in everyone's ass. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so some, I,
1: so some some good came out of it
0: there, right. Yeah, <laughs> making me a pain in the ass is always good. Um. So th- I, you know, I, that's when I started contacting MDH, and I contacted the Immunization Action Coalition, and I contacted um, my state rep- my state senator who was um, Dick Cohen, um, and he's a, he's a great state senator. Um, and I just tried contacting everyone, and they're like, "Yeah, I haven't heard anything. Don't think anything's going on." I was like, "What?" Ah! Yeah. Um, and so, it, it, uh, yeah, that was. I mean, I don't think I'm the crux of it all, but um, you, I think that you know, once Representative Freiberg was elected and he had some political appetite to do something for it, everything just sort of lined up. Then I don't think in 2011 anyone really had any political appetite to do anything. And I, I feel like that
1: has definitely changed. I mean, I think the media coverage of this outbreak there is a lot of uh first of all i have enjoyed a lot of the media stories that have been willing to call a spade a spade and say look this atrocious behavior on the part of the anti-vaccine movement is happening right now they are anti-vaxxers they essentially caused this to happen i
3: do think it takes um an outbreak to generate attention around this issue i mean um Like I said, I introduced the bill initially in 2014, and aside from some emails from some real hardcore anti-vaxxers, there was just no traction, no interest in the bill at all. Then in 2015, it just so happened the day I reintroduced the bill, it was a new session, so I had to put out a new version of it, um, was also the day that the outbreak in Disneyland in California started getting reported about and suddenly I had calls from reporters just all over the place Um, you know and they were like are you just in, you know, one of them actually asked me are you just interested in this now because of the because of the outbreak in Disneyland and I said no I introduced this last year nobody and nobody seemed to care that much about it and so and then you know I by that you know by the beginning of this year the interest in it had died down again kind of and I'd reintroduced the bill nobody was I didn't hear from any media outlets I didn't get a hearing on it but then now now suddenly we have this outbreak of measles and um suddenly I'm uh, I'm he- I'm hearing about it again, and the chair actually said in a in a committee um, just last week that he was he didn't commit to hearing the bill next year, but he said uh, he he's beginning to look more favorably upon it, or some sort of political answer, kind of like that.
1: It is really unfortunate that we have to have, and this is true in nearly every state, that we have to have basically kids get sick. Uh, in order to make changes that improve public health when it comes to vaccinations, I feel like. Um, and I don't want any outbreaks to happen, but I do want when they happen for people to open their eyes a bit and say, this is really something important. Uh, maybe we can make something, make some changes for the better, uh, and be inspired by this tragic event happening to so that this doesn't have to happen to other kids and there's so much in terms of uh what i see um in in iowa and in other states where there's the potential to pass bills good bills that could improve immunization rates but they just can't get moving unless there's something that captures the state's interest uh uh and and gets them going and that and then of course then you have to play uh, figure out the 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 political landscape how many of what party are in power and and what's the chance of something actually happening um and there's so many pieces that seem to have to 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 be put into play and and positioned correctly so I, i i cannot tell you enough how much i appreciate you making these efforts both in terms of you know Thinking about legislation when there's not an outbreak, but also thinking about, no, what can we do with this? What can we do now that we have this um, to help this not happen again?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. I appreciate that.
0: Um, thank you, Representative Mike Freiberg, for joining us today. It was really enlightening to talk to you, and um, thank you for everything that you do. Thank you, everyone, for listening to our podcast today, and thank you to our guests today. Um, it, I would like to uh, encourage everybody to, uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, to make a donation at slash support. You can find me at on Twitter at voices4 with the number four vaccines and at our website at voicesforvaccines.org. My name is Karen Ernst, and I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines.
1: And I'm Nathan Boonstra. I'm I'm a general pediatrician in Des Moines, Iowa. You can find me on Twitter as well at PedsGeekMD as my handle, and also just look me up on Facebook or find my blog at PedsGeekMD.com. Thank you very much for listening today.
0: Yep, thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.